You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So the headline read, Columbia Votes Against Peace. It was last October. Uh, Citizens who had lived through this 52-year civil war had this opportunity to vote yes or no to a peace agreement. It was a peace agreement that had already been agreed upon and signed by the opposing forces of the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Army Armed Forces of Colombia, known as the FARC. All that was left to do was for voters to approve the agreement in this nationwide referendum. Most of the observers saw this as a mere formality that would obviously end in a yes vote, a yes to peace, to end this 52-year war that left 220,000 people dead and displaced millions. But they voted no. They voted against peace. Now, I didn't read the 297-page peace deal, and I'm not Colombian, and I don't pretend to know what's best for Colombia. Maybe it was a bad deal. Maybe it wasn't what was best for Colombia. I know that the campaign to vote no against the peace deal, says that there isn't enough retributive justice against the FARC. There wasn't enough punishment. They were getting off too easy. That it was rewarding bad behavior by giving the FARC seats in the Colombian Congress and no jail time for those who confessed and pleaded guilty to their crimes. So rather than accept this deal to end this war, they chose the possibility of more bloodshed and more violence. And they continue in a war that has been going on for most voters their entire lives. And this week, seven to eight months later, they're still working to get this peace deal right for both sides. They're still working to figure out what peace looks like in a country that's been in a war for 52 years. And it begs the question, which side is God on? I would say he's on both sides. He wants peace for both sides. He loves both sides. He forgives both sides. Now, I share this story with you. It breaks my heart, but it's not uncommon. It's actually the norm. This is just a clear story of how we choose war over peace. We vote against peace. Nations choose war and violence and bloodshed and death rather than forgive, rather than choose peace. The headline, Colombia votes against peace. The story points to what is wrong but true about our world. And it fits perfectly within the narratives and the scripts and the ideologies of the world that we find ourselves in. The empires, the kingdoms, the nations have functioned like this throughout history, from the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, who proclaimed a good news, right, by taking over your country and town and insisting that you bow the knee to Caesar and proclaim Caesar is Lord or die by the sword of Caesar. It's, it's the display of power or the use of power, if that doesn't work, to oppress the weak. From the Roman Empire to the American Empire, our, our own country's less attractive parts of history, all the way to the hostility, the hostility and the division that we see even within America today between political parties and ideologies, both sides working with the same narrative. Be in power, use power to provoke fear, use power and fear to oppress the other. But I see this in my own life too. When my pride and my own need to be right, my ideologies lead deeper into conflict and division. 
Rather than seeking peace and reconciliation, rather than ending the cycle of revenge, I vote against peace every day. But the story that we're told, the narrative that this world gives us, the scripts that we're given to act out, the ideologies we buy into, they say exactly that. They say that it's good and right to seek revenge over reconciliation. It's good and right to punish rather than forgive. It says our image is more important than our integrity. Individualism and independence is more important than community. It's what's easy over love because love is never easy. It's our anti-values, right? We say our values each week, but then the rest of the week we're bombarded all day, every day with this other message that says, love self for self's sake, right? It says, guard your own back at the expense of others. It says, dismiss and ignore and attack others' values. It says, question others' motives while never questioning your own. It says, tear down others and sing your own praises. Right? We, we buy into this system. It's, it's a system of retributive justice over restorative justice. Now, if you look on our website and our values as a church, one of the things that ground us is the value of restorative justice. And if you look on our website, here's what it says. It says, in Jesus as king, God is restoring all of creation, making right all that has been made wrong due to sin, rebellion, violence, and fear. As we live and bear witness to God's kingdom, we find ourselves in the midst of ugly powers, systems of greed, and political posturing. God's kingdom doesn't always align with these powers, and therefore, and therefore to promote peace and restoration, we must sometimes humbly confront these broken systems and set ourselves to make right what has been made wrong. It's what we see in the cross of Christ. See, to him, to Jesus, according to his entirely upside-down system, his entirely upside-down kingdom, it's better to die in nonviolence than continue in the same system of revenge and violence that leads to more violence. Right? He absorbs all of the retributive justice, the punishment, so that restorative justice can begin. New life, a new kingdom, a new way of being human. But in the world's eyes, this Messiah, this Savior, this Lord is a loser, right? Because our system, the world says if our message is a Christ crucified, then he's a failed Messiah. He died, they lived. He lost, they won. But for Paul, losing the battle is actually a new way that he invites us into. The foolishness of the cross is actually the wisdom of God. Weak is the new strong. So in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter, uh, verses 18 through 31, Paul says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom... The world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers, consider your calling. 
Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble, noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God has chosen what is in, insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. But it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, no one can boast, that one who boasts must boast in the Lord. So if we see this, as a who wins and who loses, it looks like he died as an enemy of the state. It looks like the powerful defeated the weak. But if you look at this as a new way of being in the world, a new way to live, a different kingdom that says violence and revenge are no longer the way, but love and grace and peace, even to the point of losing to that other system, love and grace and peace is actually better. It is the beauty of losing the battle that God can take what looks like defeat, and turn it into something more, something new, where love wins. It asks the question, who is Lord? Caesar and his peace and prosperity through coercive military force and revenge and dominating and oppressing and comparing? Or Jesus and his self-giving, sacrificial love? Who is Lord? Because Jesus, Jesus is a loser Lord, and I say that in the most worshipful way possible. <laughs> Because it sets us free from that whole system of measuring up and comparing ourselves with each other, seeking revenge in the self-righteous game of building myself up at the expense of others. Because in order for me to be a winner, I have to point at you as a loser. In order for me to look good, somebody has to look bad. That system is exhausting and it doesn't work because it's a cycle that leads backwards. Jesus losing says you are enough. Your weakness, your not good enoughness, is exactly where you tap into the source of everything good because weak is the new strong. And that's true for me and probably for most of you. The times of growth in our lives, the times when we wake up to this new reality of God's kingdom, the times of realizing what's really important, what matters most, when our love grows, it's through those hard times, it's through those trials, it's through our weakness. It was my accident, right? It was losing people I love. It was my trials, my weaknesses, my failures. When I use language like, I'm done, I'm at the end of myself. When I reached the end of my own source of strength is when I tapped into the ultimate source of everything that is good. It's where I found that I belonged to him. I already had what I was striving for. And all my striving was actually working against me because God is on my side even when I fail, especially when I'm weak and vulnerable. Jesus, not Caesar, says, I am loved, not because I win, but because I am. But the difficulty in the cross isn't just dying to that other system that bombards every part of my life all day, every day, and tempts me with winning, tempts me with getting back at my enemies. The difficulty in the cross is that the cross is for my enemies too. It was for the ones who physically drove the nails through his hands and feet. And it was for me whose sins drove the nails through his hands and feet. It was for God's chosen people, Israel, and their enemies. Right? Jonah gets it. Jonah knows this isn't fair. 
I've been a big fan of Jonah lately as I read and study and awaken to this story. There's so much more, so much more than a kid's story. In fact, it's a really bad kid's story. Usually we tell this to kids, and it's a strange lesson to teach the kids that you better listen to God and do what God says, or he's going to send a big fish and swallow you up, right? Like, sweet dreams, five-year-old. Like, have fun with, <laughs> with those images in your head. Um, so, and that's not the message of Jonah at all. So don't teach that to your kids. So I just want to bring a few things out of Jonah, um, a quick summary, a quick run-through of Jonah. In chapter 1, God tells Jonah, the prophet of God, to go to Nineveh. And then it says, Jonah packs his things, he gets on a boat and heads to Tarshish, which is the opposite direction of Nineveh. And there's no reason given to this. There's no reason of why he's going the opposite direction. But I think this points to how mysterious and how stubborn and how fickle humans are, right? We do things that don't make sense. Like, go to Nineveh, Jonah packs his things and goes to Tarshish. It doesn't make any sense. What are you doing, Jonah? But I think Paul gets to this in Romans 7, 15. He says, I don't understand what I do. I don't think do the things I want to do, and the things that I hate, those are the things that I do. Like, I'm so, such a mystery. My, my heart, my humanness is so fickle and stubborn, and it doesn't make any sense. The story is interesting in another way. It says it, the characters don't fit their roles. So Jonah gets on this boat full of heathen sailors. They worship all these other gods, but these heathen sailors are the ones who actually seek God and end up worshiping God, while the prophet of God is busy ignoring and running away from God. The prophet of God falls asleep and takes a nap while this huge storm comes up. And this storm comes and, and causes these sailors to try to figure out what's going on, what's causing this. We, we need to sacrifice something to a God. Which God is it? And they figure out that it's Jonah's God. Jonah's God. And so they worship Jonah's God. And they end up throwing Jonah over and the storm stops and they worship Jonah's God. And then... Chapter 1 ends with Jonah in the belly of a fish. Chapter 2, Jonah prays from the belly of the fish, right? And his prayers are eloquent, and he's actually borrowing language from Psalms. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a tight spot, my prayers aren't eloquent, right? They're, they're oh God, oh God, oh God, save me, save me, save me. You know, it's, it's not a, a, a fancy, eloquent prayer. And so the Psalms that he borrows from, it's interesting, the Psalms are divided into prayers of of thanksgiving and praise and prayers of lament. And you would think that Jonah, being in the belly of a fish, might be lamenting, right? Might be in a, in a sort of a bad spot. But the psalms that he borrows from are actually psalms of praise and thanksgiving, which I would say points to the idea that the storms and the fish might actually be blessings, might actually be salvations. The things that are trials in our lives might actually be saving us from ourselves. Chapter 3. The prophet of God finally acts like a prophet of God, and he goes and tells the message to the city Nineveh, but not really. Okay, he answers the city. He says five words in Hebrew. Basically, Nineveh is going to be destroyed in 40 days. That's all he says. Now, if you know other prophets, like we went through a series on the prophets, like usually their language is like big and grand and flowery and beautiful it's got all these metaphors about how these people have messed up and how they need to repent, what God will do if they don't and what that looks like. And so there's this big, beautiful language of prophets, and Jonah doesn't even mention God. He just says the city's going to be destroyed. But their response, the response of the people of Nineveh was epic, right? They repented. They turned from their evil ways. Even the king declared that everyone should fast, even the cows, and so they, they mourned and wailed and fasted and prayed and repented. And then it says, 
God relents, right? God held back from the destruction that he said he was going to send Nineveh, which the word in Hebrew also translates God repented. Sometimes God has to step into the story and show us the behavior he desires of us. So he turned from their destruction because he's a God who wants to restore, not destroy, which upsets Jonah. So we come to chapter 4, and Jonah reveals this is why he fled to Tarshish. This is why I didn't want to come to the Ninevites, because God's not fair, right? God, you aren't fair. And this is what he says. He says, I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love, one who relents from sending disaster. And this is why Jonah's mad, because God is rich in faithful love. See, he wants his enemies to get what they deserve, right? He wants them to be punished and to be destroyed. To be fair, uh, Nineveh was an Assyrian city who had been at war with Israel, right? This was Jonah's enemies. Now, Assyria was an empire that lasted 1,700 years. It's an empire that you study if you want to know how to maintain an empire because they maintained it for 1,700 years. So how do you maintain an empire? By being ruthless and despicable and horrible people. They humiliated their enemies, not just destroyed them. They cut off limbs and ears and eyes. Or with the Israelites, who were particularly careful about their purity of their family line, the Assyrians took the Israelites and forced them to have children with the Assyrians, creating impurity in their Hebrew line, which also caused the people who had these half-Assyrian babies to be outcasts from the community as traitors because they were seen as giving in and letting the Assyrians do this to them. We know these people as Samaritans when we get to the time of Jesus. So Jonah is hoping for their destruction. God is looking to restore everything. Jonah goes out to see what happens, right? He, he leaves the city and sits outside the city and hoping to see God destroy it, right? He's pouting like a little baby. <laughs> and God appoints this plant to grow up over Jonah and give him shade while he waits. And this is the only part of the story where Jonah is happy. It's like, oh, I like this plant. It feels good. It's nice. I like the shade. But then God appoints a worm to eat the plant. And then God appoints a scorching wind to make Jonah hot and sweat. And Jonah's furious again. The whole time, God is saving Jonah from his own selfishness, his own bent toward revenge and this cycle of violence. But he's also saving Jonah's enemies. He asks Jonah, the story ends with these series of questions. He asks Jonah, is it right for you to be angry over the plant? And Jonah says, Yes, I'm angry enough to die. God is so patient with this guy. God says, so you get to care about this plant that you didn't care for or water or make grow. Shouldn't I be concerned about this city of 120,000 people and animals? And that's how the book ends. That's the question that the book ends with. It's kind of a strange ending, but the lesson is clear that God is teaching Jonah. I am restoring everything. The mention of animals there at the end is a, is a reference to Genesis 1 and the creative order. Not only is God rescuing Jonah, but he's rescuing Jonah's enemies. And not only his enemies, but all of creation. And that's not fair because these Ninevites are horrible people, which is what we want, right? We want those criminals to get the maximum sentence. We want our enemies to get their punishment, those lawbreakers, until the lights are flashing in our rear view. Randy Otis is behind you. 
All right, and, and I was going the speed limit plus five, which is the speed limit for me. And then we want not fair to work on our behalf. We want not fair to work in our favor. We want to get off with a warning, right? See, if we live in this game of point systems and comparing and winners and losers, if we live according to the world's systems of power, then we will continue like a ping pong match, back and forth, getting nowhere where we want to return insult for insult. We want to see our enemies destroyed. We want, to, we want them to get what they deserve. We want them to lose. We want for our revenge to be the last word. But our loser Lord invites us to put the ping pong paddle down because God's not playing that game. And he invites us out of that game. And it will appear that you lose, right? When you put the ping pong paddle down, you lose the ping pong match. So when your country is stuck in a ping-pong of a 52-year civil war, you could vote against peace and seek punishment and revenge. When you're in a ping-pong match with your ex-spouse and the kids come home with their heads filled with the bad things that your ex said about you, you could say bad things about them. When someone calls you a pansy online, you could return the insult. (laughs) When you're in a Twitter battle back and forth, you could keep tweeting. When you're in a sibling battle of yelling back and forth insults, you could get the last word. When a coworker takes credit for your work, you could sabotage their work. When a criminal is convicted for taking a life, you could take their life. When the people in the highest office of government are mean and insulting, you could be mean and insulting back. When someone strikes you on one cheek, you could hit them back. When someone takes your coat, you could steal something of theirs. When someone forces you to go one mile, you could refuse. But you could stop playing ping pong, right? That's what the cross is. When Jesus dies, to show it, he's showing us that this ping pong battle is not the only way to be human. He is inviting us to stop playing that game. And it will look like you lose. So when you vote for peace and restorative justice, it looks like you lose. When you don't say bad things about your ex that said bad things about you. When you simply realize that a pansy is actually a strong, resilient, beautiful flower. (laughs) When a nation doesn't bomb the other nation back, it looks like you lose. When you don't run a negative campaign, you might actually lose the campaign. When you stop tweeting back, when you let your sibling have the last word, when you sing the praises of your coworker or competitor, when you don't take a life for taking a life, when you don't participate in the left-right liberal conservative game of meanness and insults, when you turn the other cheek, it will look like you lose. When you give away your shirt too, when you go the extra mile, it will look like you lose. When you take up your cross, you might actually be crucified and die because you refused to keep the violence in circulation. You ended the cycle of revenge. But what's really happening here is that you're showing the world that there's actually another way to be human. We don't have to continue in the ping pong match of the myth of redemptive violence. There is victory for all of humanity when we stop playing that game. You are joining God who is not playing that game that doesn't work since the beginning of human history. Losing the battle is actually a victory. 
in the real battle against the larger cycle at play. The real battle isn't about who wins at the end of the cycle of revenge. The battle that Jesus invites us into is against the cycle itself. The beauty is that this battle is actually breaking the cycle. So I recently discovered uh, cocolithophores. You guys know about cocolithophores? Um, Cocolithophores are a type of phytoplankton. They're a single-cell plant-like organism that lives near the surface of the ocean. Cocolithophores are engaged in a constant battle with viruses called EHVs. So at any moment, somewhere on the planet, trillions of these cocolithophores are fighting for their lives against these viruses. Now, the cocolithophores are covered with um, these, these plate-like chalk on the, the one on the left. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's what we make chalk out of. So they're covered in this, this armor. Now, the virus is a diamond-shaped virus, and it can penetrate that armor somewhere, a chink in the armor. And when it does, it slowly kills the cocolithophores. And the virus uses the cocolithophore as an incubator to pump out more and more viruses. And so the cocolithophore, who is slowly dying, sends this signal out to the trillions of other cocolithophores saying, it's too late for me, but save yourselves. Don't let this virus win, right? Now, for the purposes of our illustration, the, the virus is the cycle of revenge. Okay, so this is where it gets interesting because when that signal goes out, the cocolithophores actually alter their DNA. They shed the chalk-like armor and they form this other scale sort of armor, which slows down the virus, but eventually the virus gets through that too, and begins killing the cocolithophores and using it um, to produce more viruses. Now, the cocolithophores have one last trick up their sleeve, and this last, last trick is programmed cell death. They release this protein. It's a ninja protein, and it has a sword, and it starts slicing the cell to pieces, right? It starts slicing the cocolithophore to pieces, killing itself. So trillions of these things destroy themselves Destroy the means by which the virus could continue, right? It ends the cycle of revenge by losing the battle. The cocolithophores, <laughs> the cocolithophores, um, losing the battle is how we survive. Because every time this happens, these trillions of uh, phytoplankton die, trillions of other phytoplankton bloom. It's a cycle of death leading to life. And every time this cycle happens, the carbon, uh, carbon dioxide is absorbed and a breath of oxygen is released, and this accounts for half of the oxygen we breathe. Every other breath is because of this battle, right? The battle of the cocolithophores dying so that the virus doesn't continue. And the way the battle works is that the cocolithophores, for our illustration purposes, the cross, stops the virus. It ends the cycle of revenge by dying rather than letting the cycle continue. So Jesus invites us to join him in restoring everything. But to be clear, both systems aren't fair, but for different reasons. In the system of the world that says the cycle of revenge is the only way, what you have is this injustice of the powerful who oppress the powerless, right? It's, it's leaving one unfair system for another. The foolishness of the cross, right? The weak is the new strong isn't fair either. Both systems aren't fair. The one that dominates our world is based on injustice and oppression and scarcity and lack. It isn't fair because there isn't enough to go around. The powerful get theirs, leaving nothing for the powerless. But God's kingdom is not fair because there is enough. And he is too generous with his resources, giving to those who don't deserve it. Jesus tells a parable about this in Matthew 20. He says this, he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner 
who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out at about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. To those men, he said, you also go work in my vineyard. I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and at three, he went out again and did the same thing. And then at about five, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said. Duh. <laughs> you also go to my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, Call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired at about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received one denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us, who bore the burden of the, of the day and the burning heat? He replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on one denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my business? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This isn't about being last in the, in the line of the fellowship meal, right? Like this is, this is about somebody has to go first. Somebody has to insist that another way is possible. And this way isn't fair because God gives generously to those who don't deserve it. And when you go first, when you, when you end the cycle of revenge, the system is made to protect itself. The system means that you will suffer. But somebody has to lay down their weapons first. Somebody has to not return fire. Somebody has to not return insult for insult, not seek revenge. It means removing the them and the us-them battle to where it's only us. There is no them. They become your neighbor. When you love your enemies, you lose the battle. But when you love your enemies, enemies cease to exist. So the beauty in this losing battle is that all battles must end. There is beauty in fighting the battle not against flesh and blood, but against the cycle that says the battle against flesh and blood must rage on. And God stands on both sides of those battles. He's on the side of humans. He's on the side, on both sides, pleading with you to let the battle be lost so that together we can join the battle of restoring everything. He's there with you when you want to return fire, saying, don't return fire. When you want them to get what they deserve, he says, let me restore them. When you want revenge, he says, you're not good at that. Let me worry about that. When you want them to suffer, he says, let me suffer in their place. He's there saying, I absorbed all that on the cross. I died so this cycle and this system could end. So I invite you to lose the battle so that we can join God in the battle to restore everything. 